You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 11 this morning, which actually picks up with where we left off in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter reporting what happened with Cornelius and Caesarea, which we read about last week. So let's dive right in. This is Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of glory, we ask even now, that you would so fill your church with the power that flows from Christ's resurrection, that in the midst of this broken world, this sinful world, it may signal the beginning of a renewed humanity. 
risen to new life in Christ. Christ, who now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Jesus' church, the church for all people, is simultaneously more inclusive and more exclusive than any culture. And so we'll spend the time we have left this morning looking at those two things. Exclusivity, it's the church, there's only one of them. And then inclusivity, the church for all people. So first, exclusivity. Last week in Acts chapter 10, we saw how God's initiative overcame Peter's reluctance to bring the gospel to Gentiles. God was working concurrently in Peter and in Cornelius, giving them each a vision, preparing Peter to proclaim and Cornelius to receive the good news about Jesus. The other apostles and Jewish Christians throughout this region of Judea learn about this. They hear what happened in Caesarea. And so when Peter returns to Jerusalem, verse 2, he's criticized by what Luke calls the circumcision party. These are Jewish believers in Jesus who insisted that circumcision was still necessary for salvation and that there really should be no fellowship, no community, no relationships with new Christians unless they also received that sign of God's covenant with, with Abraham. In reply to their concerns and their criticism, Peter simply reports the events of Acts chapter 10. The same Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius and his household. In other words, Peter's reply is, do you remember Pentecost? Some of you, no doubt, were here at Pentecost when we received the Spirit. The same thing just happened in Caesarea. See, there was, a, there was Pentecost, actual Pentecost, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And there was then a Samaritan Pentecost, so to speak, in Acts chapter 8 when Philip went to Samaria. Peter and John, Peter himself and John, were sent then to investigate in Samaria, and it all checked out. Now, in Acts 10 and 11, there's been a Gentile Pentecost. And Peter's in this unique place because having witnessed all three, he can uniquely say what he says in verse 17. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? See, Peter understands the struggle of the circumcision party. He, he was reluctant too. But when God gives, gives the same spirit accompanied by the same signs, there's only one conclusion to draw. And it's the conclusion of verse 18. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The massive theme of these chapters in Acts is the inclusivity of the church, how the church expands not only geographically, but across cultural and racial and ethnic and social barriers. But before we continue digging into that inclusivity, don't miss the exclusivity that's here. When Luke introduced us to Cornelius back at the beginning of chapter 10, what did Luke say about Cornelius? He said Cornelius was a devout man, a man who feared God, a man who gave alms generously. He financially supported the poor and he prayed continually to God. In other words, Cornelius is a good man. He's a religious man. He reverently fears the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He worships. He prays. And his faith is not a faith simply of word and talk, but deed and action. He gives generously. His deeds, we read there in, Luke, in Acts 10, have ascended as a memorial before God. 
But that's not enough. But that's not enough. He is still, in Acts chapter 10 when we meet him, outside of the kingdom of God. And what Peter says here in chapter 11, verse 14, he, has been sent, he was sent to Cornelius to declare a message by which Cornelius would be what? Would be saved. When does salvation come to Cornelius and to Cornelius' household? Only when Peter proclaims that message, the good news of Christ. That is when the Holy Spirit falls and indwells Cornelius and his household, and not a moment before. This is the exclusivity of the church. Cornelius is a quality human being, a man of character, the kind of guy that any religious community or even non-religious community would want to be a part of it, a contributor, an upright man. And yet, as we read back in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one but Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. So being a good person, doing good works, even, this is kind of crazy, even being a God-fearer who prays continuously, all of these are noble, respectable things. Often they signify that someone is very near to the kingdom of God. But salvation comes through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus himself is the narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow way. And so as Acts eleven eighteen puts it, the way to life in him is a way of repentance from our sin and belief in him and in the work he has accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. Similarly, when Barnabas is then sent by the church in Jerusalem to this newly emerging church in Antioch, and we'll talk more about that church in Antioch in a second, when Barnabas is sent there, just as Peter and John were sent to Samaria, he's sent to verify that the same gospel is being proclaimed and believed. He's sent to verify that the same Spirit of God is at work there. Barnabas looks for evidences of the grace of God in Antioch. And he finds them. He finds them. But get this, he doesn't just assume that they were there. He doesn't just hear reports of something happening in Antioch and say, that's good enough. He goes and investigates, and then when he finds them, he's glad. And he encourages the people there to remain faithful with steadfast purpose, to press on in wholehearted faithfulness. All that to say, the church is not a free-for-all. There is a message with specific content that must be believed. There is a way of living in response to what Jesus has done that must be pursued, and it is in those ways exclusive. We live in a cultural moment that is marked by a lot of inclusivity, discussion about inclusivity. And so the inclusivity of the gospel and the inclusivity of the church is not nearly as offensive and difficult to comprehend for us as it was, clearly, for first century Jewish men and women. Now, praise God 
for that. We can recognize, in some ways, the grace of God at work through our own history and in our own culture, and that today, in this moment, many more of us, maybe all of us in this room, will readily affirm the dignity and worth of all people and would not only be willing but excited to welcome people from all kinds of races and ethnicities and backgrounds into Jesus' church. That hasn't always been true in the history of the church, especially in our country. That hasn't always been the case. But in our day, the exclusivity is more likely to offend. That being a good person and doing good things is not enough. That even belief in God and prayer is not enough. That, that you can be a contributing, honorable, devout person and yet remain outside the kingdom of God unless you repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus. We often erect these unnecessary barriers to the gospel where we substitute cultural or personal preferences for, for gospel truth. But what I want you to hear this morning is that we are just as prone and as 21st century Western people, perhaps even more prone to take the necessary obstacles down. There is a narrow gate and his name is Jesus and apart from him, no one will experience the salvation of God. Now, when you wrestle with that, because if you love people, you will wrestle with that. And when you are, when you are moved to tears at the thought of good and honorable people, and if you're honest, people that you even like more than some fellow Christians, that they have not actually entered into God's kingdom, when that feels wrong, and when God perhaps feels unjust in that, Remind yourself of what we have seen so far and what we will keep seeing in the book of Acts and ask yourself, who is the reluctant one and who is the eager one? This exclusive gospel of Jesus, this God who requires exclusive devotion to himself, he is the eager one. We are the reluctant ones. And so if you find yourself thinking that you are somehow more eager or passionate for someone's salvation than Jesus himself is, something's gone wrong in your perspective. You are overestimating your heart for someone and underestimating God's. He is, Jesus Christ is always and forever the eager one. But he is exclusive. And so it is not loving to attempt to remove these necessary obstacles of repentance from our sin and faith in him. Now, if this morning you need another reminder of God's eagerness, and I do, and who doesn't, there is no shortage of that in Acts 11. So having seen the exclusivity, let us also see again the inclusivity that, that, it, that the church is for all people. As Peter is recounting here, when he received this vision, he was really reluctant he says, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And Jesus replies, what God has made clean, do not call common. And that cycle, as John pointed out last week, happened three times. Three times. One scholar called them successive hammer blows of divine revelation. Like God had to keep hammering that point home to overcome Peter's reluctance and Peter's partiality. I need the same kind of divine hammer blows at times, and sometimes I wish they were as clear as Peter's. The sheet of animals is certainly a statement about clean and unclean food. It is that, but it is even more a statement about people. 
The point of Jesus' words to Peter in that moment is don't call common or unclean the people that God is making clean, has made clean in Jesus. Don't make that distinction anymore. There is one distinction left to be made, and it is what a person does with Jesus and his finished work. That's the only one left to make. It's difficult to imagine how massive a paradigm shift this was for Peter, for the apostles, for other Jewish men and women in the first century. Even those like some of the circumcision party who had already put their faith in Jesus, they believe, they believe in Jesus, and yet it takes them a long time. It takes a long time for the full import and all the implications of that to, to flesh themselves out, to become real in their everyday experience. After hearing Peter's report, verse 18, many in the circumcision party fall silent and they glorify God. So to their credit, they are willing to be convinced. They are willing to accept this new work of God. And in that sense, they are actually unlike the Jewish leaders who during his life and ministry kept trying to trap him in his words. Jesus kept answering objection after objection after objection. And every time they would just kind of go off to the corner and huddle up again and say, okay, how do we try next? Where do we, where do we try to trap him? Where can we object again? Here, the circumcision party displays a sincere form of seeking, a willingness to have their objections answered and to change their mind. They're going to need that for what comes next because in the city of Antioch, the gospel is about to reach Gentiles on an exponentially larger scale. Back in Acts 8, we read about this persecution that erupted after Stephen's death. We now find that some of the scattered made their way as far north as Phoenicia and Cyprus and this city called Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. In the first century, it was both a political capital. It was the seat of the Roman province of Syria. It was also a commercial center. And with a population of at least a half a million people and potentially many more, it was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world at the time. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. Because of its location and commerce, it was a, a very cosmopolitan city, a melting pot city, home to people from many different nations and races. Home also, church tradition tells us, of Luke himself, the author of this book. Luke was a Gentile who, who likely came to faith during this time, during this year, that Barnabas and then Saul were there in Antioch teaching the church. And then we read there in verse 26, it's the place where disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. Initially, the scattered Christians proclaimed the gospel only to Jews, but then a few, guided by the hand of God, begin sharing Christ with the Hellenists, with the Greek population that's there in Antioch. And we read, a great many of them turned to the Lord. Now up to this point, in Scripture, as we've traced the, the redemptive story of God, we have seen over and again outsiders included with God's people. So think about Rahab from Jericho. Think about Ruth from Moab. We've seen then Jesus in Samaria with the woman at the well. In Acts, we've seen Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And we've just seen Peter with Cornelius and Cornelius' household. But Antioch is the first place we see the gospel take root and explode outward into the Gentile world. It's not just that a, group, a large group of Gentiles comprises the church in Antioch, 
But from Antioch, the gospel will go out to Jews and Gentiles all over the Mediterranean world. This city becomes a hub of sending people into the known world at the time for years afterward, for years to come. When we get to Acts 13, we'll see Saul and Barnabas themselves sent out from Antioch. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. For this morning, let us see again the incredible inclusivity of the gospel and the incredible inclusivity of Jesus' church. It transcends any one culture, which is something incredibly unique about this faith that we share, about Christianity. With other religions, the religious practices and the cultural practices from the culture in which that religion emerged are linked really closely together and in some cases are inseparable. But from these earliest days, these earliest years after Jesus' ascension, though there are certainly still moral commands and obligations, there's an incredible amount of cultural freedom given to each expression of the church as it emerges in these different places. All foods are clean. You don't have to eat all foods, but you can. You don't have to be circumcised anymore to experience salvation and the covenant of God, but you can. You don't have to not be. At certain points, the the gospel will rebuke every single culture, but it also respects and redeems cultural roots in a way that does not require complete uniformity. And it would have been incredible to see that unfold in Antioch during this year that Barnabas and Saul are there. In this cosmopolitan city with many who did not have a shared Jewish cultural background, the ethos, so to speak, the feel of this church in Antioch would be much different than that of the church in Jerusalem. They would have felt and looked different. And yet, this church in Antioch is just as blessed by God. Just as significant in God's ongoing work and divine mission. And in case there's any question of that, by the time we reach the end of this chapter, Antioch actually looks like it has the stronger church. It's about to be the hub from which Saul and Barnabas are sent. There's a famine in Judea and Jerusalem. And this church in Antioch, with a sense of family obligation, family opportunity, says, my brothers and sisters are in need. We've got funds. As we've received their spiritual blessing, let us bless them materially so they can be blessed by us. Just as blessed by God in Antioch, just as significant in God's work. Friends, in light of Acts chapter 11, consider this this morning. Are you as inclusive as Jesus? Are we as a church family as inclusive as Jesus' church? Now, mind you, as we've already considered, we need to be as exclusive as Jesus too. Sin is real. Repentance is necessary. Salvation is found in no one else. But just as we oppose God when we try to take away those necessary obstacles, we oppose God when we erect obstacles that he has broken down. And the honest truth is we have a horrible habit, and it's actually worse than that, an inclination toward evil in our own hearts of erecting cultural or preferential barriers that are not necessary for salvation. It can be shocking to us how long it took Peter and the apostles and this early church to embrace Gentiles, to not require more of them than God requires, to wake up to this reality that Jesus' church really is the church for all people. 2,000 years removed from these moments, 
And now as part of a global church and almost all of us in the room, at least many of us Gentile people and people that have a heritage from many different nations around the world, we can look, look at these people and look at these chapters in Acts and be like, really? Wow, guys. Wow. Took you that long? But we do exactly the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. I guarantee you that you have not stepped into the full import and all the implications of this either. And you will almost certainly struggle with at least some aspect of this for your entire life. Why do you think that in every generation, sins of partiality, sins of prejudice keep emerging? And it's like whack-a-mole. So like in one generation, we hit this one down over here, and then this one pops up over here, and then the next generation hits that one down, and then this one pops back up over here, and back and forth we go. So what is it for you? Who is hard for you to include, to be excited about including? Is it people of a particular race? In the near future, uh, the elders are going to send a letter out about something called critical theory, and specifically critical race theory. Steve King has done a, a phenomenal job of pulling that together for us. But I want you to hear me say this this morning. Here's why we're doing that. Here's why we're doing that. Racism is wicked. It is evil. It is a sin. But critical race theory, and as it's been termed, anti-racism, because of what it is, because of its underlying inherent assumptions, can only fuel partiality in other directions. That's all it's capable of doing. And we as elders want you to hear from us, the gospel is way better news than that. The gospel is way better news than that. So please read that when that comes out. Interact with that and ask questions. And I would say this to you this morning, do not dare take that as an excuse to not care about the sin of racism. It is not by critiquing an approach that's popular in our culture by saying we don't think that's right or helpful, it is not in any way saying that racism is okay or not existent or something like that. Racism is wicked and evil. The gospel is just better news and the only way to truly deal with it. So who's hard for you to include? Is it people of a particular race? Is it people from a particular nation or group of nations? Is it people from a particular social class? Or maybe a particular background. Read some about the moral disaster that cities like Antioch were in this time. Corinth was in this time. And ask yourself how eager you would be to include the people who came to faith in Jesus from, from those backgrounds. Or maybe you never struggle with any of this. I don't believe you. But maybe you would say this morning, I don't struggle with any of that. Are you still not inclined to assign moral weight to cultural or preferential things, like music style, like preaching style, like how Christians should educate their kids. I'm not saying there aren't good discussions to be had there or principles and personal convictions that we need to follow. I am saying, God forbid we erect a barrier that Jesus has broken down. God forbid. Who are you to stand in God's way? Who am I to stand in God's way? Let us get out of God's way. Friends, this is the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Jesus' church. It is simultaneously more exclusive and more inclusive than any culture. It transcends culture. And out of the many, the gospel is creating one new humanity. 
reflecting on these last chapters, John Stott in the book of Acts, John Stott says, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. Saul a scholar, Cornelius a soldier. Saul a bigot, Cornelius a seeker. Yet both were converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And both were baptized and welcomed into the Christian family on equal terms. This fact is a signal testimony to the power and impartiality of the gospel of Christ, which is still the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Narrow is the way that leads to life, Jesus said. But his narrow way is wide enough for Jew and Gentile, for circumcised and uncircumcised, for barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Because in Christ, and only in Christ, God has granted repentance that leads to life. May we never be inclusive where he is exclusive. You and I will never be more eager than Jesus for people to experience his salvation. We never will be more eager than him. At the same time, because God grants repentance and life to people from every tongue and tribe and nation, every social class, every background, may we never be exclusive where he is inclusive. Far be it from us to stand in God's way. His church is the church for all people. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our living God, on that first Easter day, you stood in the midst of your disciples as the conqueror of sin and death, and you spoke to them your peace. Come to us now, we pray, in both your peace and your risen power. Make us glad with your presence. May we now know you as those first disciples did in the breaking of this bread. And so breathe your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we may be strong to serve you and to spread abroad your good news for the glory of your great name. Thank you for the truth of your gospel that is inclusive enough to include us and all the backgrounds that we in this room have come from and all the other backgrounds that could possibly exist. But thank you that salvation comes in no one else but you and that you have offered us yourself. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.